Well, all of us understand the hope of one day, don't we? Do you know the hope of one day? It goes something like this. Um, the preteen adolescent says, when will I ever get my own, and you fill in the blank, whatever my own thing is. When will I get my own phone? When will I get my own room? Or when will I get my own car? And the parent says, well, you will one day. It'll happen one day. We extend the hope that one day it will come to pass. The young woman says, when will I ever meet Mr. Wright? And someone says to her, well, you will. He'll come along. When will he come along? Tell me. One yeah, one day, one day he'll come along. We all know that day. The bleary-eyed college student says, uh, Ah, when will I ever graduate? When will these classes ever end? And I'll make it to graduation day. And that experienced professor says, who's heard this line hundreds of times, that professor says, it'll happen. Just be faithful. It'll happen one day. Or maybe the grieving widow or widower says, when will this pain ever become bearable? And somebody a few steps down the road ahead of him or her says, one day, one day it will get better. In a broken world, it seems like we're all always looking for that one day, aren't we? We're always hoping for that one day when things will be better. And by the way, that is especially true, isn't it, in 2020? Are we like looking for 2021? Is anybody saying, when will January ever get here? Well, it'll get here one day. In a few days, it will be here. We're always looking and hoping that next year will be better than this year. Now, by the way, it is that hope that next year will be better, which is uh, expressed in the last line of the Jewish Passover liturgy every single year when Jewish families assemble and celebrate the Passover meal. Some of you have done this. Uh, some of you have participated in Jewish Passover seders, the Passover meal. And if you have, and if, if you will remember, the last line, and the Passover liturgy is very precise and very uh, well prescribed, but the last line in that Passover liturgy is always these words, next year in Jerusalem, always. After celebrating the Passover, celebrating uh, the, this uh, Passover meal together, they will lift a glass of uh, Passover wine and they will make this declaration, next year we will celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. Now, why would they say that? Why would that be such an important part of, of their liturgy? Well, here's the, the, the reason. It is because for 2,000 years, for so long, the Jewish people could not celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. They were exiles among the nations. They had been driven out of the land of Israel, away from the city of God, and were dwelling in nations all throughout Europe and all around the world. 
They had no permanent home. They had no permanent dwelling place. They were in many countries and in many cases abused and persecuted, as you know. And so they had no safe homeland, and they longed to return to Israel. They longed to return to, the, to Zion, to the city of God. And so each year when Passover would roll around and they still weren't back, they would say, next year it'll happen in Jerusalem. And then the next year would roll around and still they were in exile, and they would say, next year we will celebrate in Jerusalem. It was their faith. It was an expression of their confidence in the promise of God, not this sort of uh, you know, uh, hopeless hoping, this desire but no possibility of it, that maybe one day something would happen and they could return to Jerusalem. No, it was their confident expression that God would keep his promise to them and that he would, in fact, gather them back to the land of of Israel. Listen to the promise that God made through Moses in Deuteronomy 30 and verse number 3, where the Bible says, The Lord your God, Moses speaking, the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. He will have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Do you see that word, that important word, that key word in verse number 3? He will gather you. These are the words of Moses in the final uh, sermons that he delivered to Israel. And he essentially says to them in the book of Deuteronomy, God is giving you a choice. You can choose life or death. You can choose blessing or cursing. I urge you to choose life, but here's what I know you will choose. You will choose death. I urge you to choose rightly, but here's what I know you will choose. You will choose wrongly. And he says to them, when you choose wrongly and you choose death and you choose idolatry and you reject your God, then he's going to punish you and you're going to end up in exile. You're going to be scattered uh, under a curse among the nations. But God is faithful and he's good. And one day in the end, he will gather you home again. And that's the promise of Deuteronomy 30 in verse number 3. And it is the promise that they claimed through all of those years of their exile that God would regather them. And why would God regather them? He would regather them because this is he who he is. He is he who gathers. This is what we've been learning, isn't it? In all of these weeks together, over the last five weeks, we've been talking about this gathering nature of God, this shepherd heart of God, which leaves the 99 and goes into the wilderness to get the one, this, this God who is constantly gathering us to himself. We discovered that he gathers his people for worship. He gathers us together to give our lives purpose and significance. He gathers people to his great table in heaven. He gathers us like a, like a mother hen gathers her chicks for our own protection and care. And last week we learned that he gathers us to the grave at the end of our lives in order to usher us into our eternal home. It's who he is. He's a gatherer. Tonight, or this morning rather, I want to talk to you about this promise from Deuteronomy and really throughout the, the, the Old Testament where God promises that he would gather Israel to their homeland in the last days. I want to talk about that promised gathering and one other gathering I want us to talk about today out of 2 Thessalonians 2, and that is the promise of our sudden gathering home to heaven 
in an event that we call the rapture of the church. You follow along as I read, you should have your Bibles open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read the entire chapter and all God's children who love the Bible said, Amen. 17 verses. I'm only going to preach about four of them, but I'm going to read them all, all right? 17 verses. Let's begin in verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. If you have a pen in your hand, I want you to circle those words, our gathering together. I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, that is the day of Christ, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin will be revealed who is called the son of perdition. He is the one who opposes God and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he, as God, or presenting himself or impersonating himself to be God, he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is withholding or restraining him, that he will not be revealed or he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now, the King James says, he who now letteth will let. It's the same word actually that's used in verse 6 for withhold. It means to restrain. He who is now restraining will restrain him until he is taken out of the way. Verse number 8, and then after the restrainer is taken out of the way, then shall that wicked one be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy him with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they may be saved." And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might all be condemned or damned, who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts 
and establish you in every good word and work. And all God's people said, Amen. This is the word of the Lord. A quick survey of chapter 1 will make it clear why in chapter 2, Paul encourages them to not be alarmed by their troubles. This is what chapter 2, verse 2 says. It's his encouragement to them. Do not be soon shaken in mind. That is, don't let your mind become disturbed. Do not be troubled. Don't become alarmed at what's happening. In the end of chapter 2, at verse number 17, he prays over them in this benediction. May the God of grace, the Father of our Lord Jesus, comfort your hearts and establish you Uh, He's praying for their comfort. And when you read those encouragements and that that word to not become alarmed or be disturbed, you, you wonder, well, why? What's going on in their lives? And it doesn't take you very long to find out. If you just go back to chapter number one, it becomes very clear that these people are suffering greatly. Look at chapter one and verse number four. So that we ourselves glory in the churches of God for your patience and faith That is that you've remained faithful in all of your persecutions and your tribulations which you endure. He said, we praise God for you because even though you're going through tribulations and persecutions and you're suffering, you're remaining faithful. Verse number five ends with these words, for which you also suffer. Verse six ends with these words, uh, them that trouble you. You are being troubled and afflicted. So in verse number one, or I'm sorry, in chapter number one, in his greeting, in the opening words of his letter, his salutation, he says, look, I know you're hurting. I know you're suffering. I know you're being persecuted. I know you're troubled. I, I know these are difficult days. Chapter two, verse one, but don't be alarmed. Don't be disturbed. God will give you comfort during these days. His encouragement to them is that they would not be overwhelmed by their current circumstances. Now, we could learn from that encouragement, couldn't we? We could apply that into our lives. What God would say to us is, do not be overwhelmed by your current circumstances. And all of us might say, well, we we have a national circumstance with COVID and all that's happening. We all know it. We've talked a lot about it. Don't need to rehash it. But the fact is, it could cause us to become overwhelmed. It could cause us to become disturbed and alarmed. And Paul would say, don't be alarmed and don't be disturbed. But now there's also troubles and sufferings, and in some cases, persecutions that we endure on a personal level. It's not so much what's happening in the nation or the world, but it's what's going on in our own personal world, our own difficulties or our own hardships. And in the same way, God would say to us, in your personal situation or circumstance, do not be Alarm, do not become disturbed, do not be overwhelmed. And you might ask the question, well, why not? There's a lot going on. If you watch the news lately, Pastor, there's a lot to be overwhelmed by. There's a lot to be disturbed about. Or you might say, if you knew my situation, if you understood what's going on in my world, then you would certainly understand why I am so overwhelmed. Well, Paul says, don't be overwhelmed, and here's why. If y'all are listening to why, say amen. Here's why. Don't be overwhelmed by your current circumstances because all of our difficulties, think about what they are in your life right now, all of our troubles, think about how many there are in the world right now, all of our difficulties, all of our troubles 
will give way one day to the entrance of the unimaginably glorious kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And one day, all of our troubles will fade away. And as we've been singing this morning, we will find ourselves singing hallelujah in his presence. Amen? This is our hope. And so Paul says, in the midst of your troubles and struggles and difficulties, don't lose sight of the coming of the Lord and of the glory that that will usher you into as a believer in Jesus. Now, in chapter 1, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, he describes what this coming of the Lord will look like or what the arrival of the kingdom of God will be like. Look at it, chapter 1, verse number 7. He says, and to you who are troubled... If that's you, you might would even raise your hand. That's me. To you who are troubled, God will give rest to us. We will have rest. When will we have rest? We will have rest when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Well, what a day that will be. Amen? We will have rest when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. What will that look like? Verse 8. Now, you need to know verses 8 and 9 are not pleasant verses because they deal with what will happen to those who reject Christ when he comes. But we need to know what will happen. Verse number 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, those who refuse to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, those are devastating words, quite honestly. It is a devastating forecast of what will happen to those who reject Jesus when Christ comes and ushers in his kingdom. Nothing pleasant here, nothing passive here. It is aggressive, it is final, and it is wrath-filled. Flaming fire, taking vengeance, uh, bringing about punishment, and the destruction of Christ's rejectors. Well, you say, well, that's, I don't want that to happen to anybody. I don't want that to happen to my loved ones. I don't want that to happen uh, to those people that I know and work with. Well, then get the gospel of Jesus to them. Because they must know Christ in order to escape the judgment of God. You say, well, I don't want that to happen to me. Well, then come to Jesus today. Because one day he will come and you need to be prepared for his return. Well, those, those things will happen. But then verse number 10 tells us what is ahead for those who know Christ. Verse 10 says, when he shall come, he will be glorified in his saints and admired or worshipped in all them that believe because, of our, uh, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. He says there will be glory and there will be worship for all of us who know Jesus. We will be ushered into his presence in that day and there will be this incredible glory and worship, admiration that will happen in that day. Now, this return of the Lord, this establishment of the kingdom of God, which will destroy the kingdoms of men, bring, bring about final judgment and will establish the kingdom of God. This event is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And when you hear the word day, don't think one 24-hour day, like it happens in one day and that's it. It really is a, is a time which begins with the tribulation period and extends all the way through the tribulation and really uh, 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 through the millennial kingdom as well. But 
He says, this day of the Lord will come. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So back one page, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 2. You'll see this phrase, the day of the Lord. He says, for you yourselves know perfectly, you know fully, that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. And when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. It's called the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, uh, where he will bring his kingdom to the earth. Uh, It is the day of the Lord. Now, it's also called in chapter 2, I'm sorry, in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it is called the day of Christ. Look at it in verse number 2. Be not soon shaken in mind, back in our text now, be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, uh, neither by spirit or by word nor by letter as from us, that the day of Christ uh, is at hand. So it's referring to the same event. The season when Christ will come, bring about judgment, bring the tribulation, and install his kingdom on the earth. It's called the day of the Lord in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. It's called the day of Christ in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Now, they're going through some difficulties. They're suffering some persecution. And here's what Paul says to them. In the midst of your suffering and persecution, your troubles, don't be alarmed and think that the day of Christ has already happened. Don't be confused and think that the day of the Lord has already come. Essentially what he's saying is, don't think that you're living in the tribulation. You're not. The tribulation is not here yet. Now I want everybody in the sound of my voice to hear me today. We're living in some tough times as a world. We're not living in the tribulation yet. Honey, you ain't seen nothing yet, all right? We might be living in the beginning of the birth pains. It's very possible that we're living in in the beginning stages, the preparation for that tribulation. But we're not living in the tribulation yet. And so he says to them, even in the suffering, even in the hardships, do not become alarmed and disturbed and think that the day of the Lord has come. Now, his assurances to them are rather explicit. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 2. Don't be shaken and alarmed in thinking that the day of Christ has come. Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. That day, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, it shall not come until. How can we know that the day of the Lord has not yet arrived? How can we know that it has not yet come? Here's how. Because Paul tells us that there are two, everybody say two, there are two gatherings that must happen before the day of the Lord can occur, before the day of Christ can come. Two gatherings that must occur. Do you remember a moment ago as I was beginning, I mentioned to you this Jewish prayer at the end of their Passover liturgy where they would say, next year... In Jerusalem. You remember that? If you do, go like this. Let's begin by talking about that particular gathering. Write it down this way. Let's see it in the passage and learn from it. Here's what we need to know God is gathering. It's what He does, it's who He is. God is gathering Israel home in time for the kingdom. God is gathering Israel home in time for the kingdom. 
You should know that much of Bible prophecy and much of the promises of Israel that speak to the kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth is centered in his promises to the nation of Israel. And if God is going to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel in the land of Israel, then it is absolutely necessary that he bring them home to Israel for the kingdom. And in fact, that is exactly what he is doing. We don't know exactly when Paul wrote the letter of 2 Thessalonians, but we think it was around AD 50 to 53, somewhere in there. It was only about 20 years after the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, very soon after the time of Jesus, Paul is writing this, uh, this letter. And as he writes to them, he says to to them that there is a gathering that must happen before the day of the Lord comes. And, And remember, they thought perhaps the day of the Lord had already come. They were looking for the kingdom within 20 years after the ascension of Jesus. It's been 2,000 years now. It's hard for us to imagine, but they were looking for it then. And so so Paul says to them, there is something that, that will happen before the day of the Lord occurs. We could say it this way. He says to them, Christ is coming, but there is another one who must come first. And the one who must come first is the anti-Christ. Now this is very clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Look at verse number 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of Christ, shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, which is the son of perdition, or the son of destruction, or the son of hell. He says that the day of Christ will not come until the man of sin, the Antichrist, the beast, Revelation calls him. He must be revealed Verse number four, he will be the one who will oppose God and exalt himself above all that is called God. He will show himself that he is God. Verse number six, seven, and eight talk about how that he will be released by the restrainer. He's going to be revealed one day, but not until the one who is holding him back lets him go. There is a power, if y'all are listening, say amen. There is a power, a force that is restraining, even though in Paul's day he says the spirit of iniquity is already at work. The spirit of Antichrist is already on the land. There's already the development of this this uh, uh, deception and the spirit of Antichrist. And the Antichrist might burst on the scene at any point. But Paul says he cannot because someone is holding him back. Verses 6, 7, and 8 tell us that when that someone that is holding him back, whom, by the way, I believe to be the Holy Spirit of God, but when that one is taken out of the way, then he will be released by the restrainer and will come forth. Now, Paul says to, to uh, these Thessalonian believers that they should not be alarmed by their troubles, thinking they're living in the tribulation. They're not, because Christ cannot come until the Antichrist is revealed and released until he comes forth. Now there's so much that we could say about the Antichrist. I mean, I've taught you about what the scripture says about him in the book of Daniel, the book of Thessalonians, the book of Revelation for years. But for our purposes today, let's focus very narrowly on what the Bible says in verse number four. Very narrow statement about what the Antichrist will do. Look at verse number four. He will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God 
or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, or in other words, pretending to be God, impersonating the Messiah, he will sit in the temple of God, showing himself or declaring himself to be God. What will the Antichrist do? He will sit in the temple of God. Now, Paul wrote these words around the year A.D. 50. When he wrote these words, the temple of God was standing in the city of Jerusalem. And so it would have been possible for an Antichrist to come and to oppose God and to impersonate the Messiah and to go into the temple in Jerusalem and to claim himself to be God. He could have done that in AD 53. He could have done it in 55. He could have done it in the year 60. He could have done it in 62, 64, 66, 68, 69. But in AD 70, something very significant happened in history. Do you know what it was? Well, the, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and leveled and with it the temple of God. And since the year A.D. 70, there has been no temple in Jerusalem. So how could the Antichrist come and sit in a non-existent temple? Essentially what happened in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple and more fully in A.D. 135 when the Jewish diaspora drove every Jew out of the land of Israel, what effectively happened is that the day of the Lord was prevented It could not occur because there was no Jew in Jerusalem and there was no temple in Jerusalem for the Antichrist to come in and to impersonate and make himself God. And so for 2,000 years, essentially from the year AD 70 until until the, the 20th century in 1948 with the establishment of the modern state of Israel, for 2,000 years the world went into waiting. For 2,000 years the world waited for the possibility of the biblical return of Jesus to be fulfilled. And for all of those 2,000 years, Zionism was beating in the hearts of every Jewish family in every nation around the world, every Passover, raising the glass. Next year we will celebrate in Jerusalem. And it could not happen for 2,000 years until the last 100, maybe the last 120 years when the Zionist movement began to take root and the Jews began to come back to Israel, culminating in 1948 when Israel became a nation again. And do you know what God has done in those years, in these last 100 years, in most of, uh, of uh, the lifetimes of us and our parents or maybe grandparents? You know what God has done? He has kept his promise to gather Israel together to prepare for the kingdom of God. I want you to know that a miracle has happened in the Holy Land in the last century. Let me just read to you. I won't ask you to turn for the sake of time, but let me read to you what the Bible says in the book of Isaiah about this regathering of the Jewish people to Israel. I'm in Isaiah 11 and verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time To recover the remnant of his people which shall be left, he will recover them from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Babylon and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. He shall set up a banner for all the nations to see and he shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and shall gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It is the word of God. He promises to gather them back home. 
Now, this was fulfilled, by the way, when they returned out of captivity uh, um, centuries ago, but it is ultimately fulfilled because Isaiah 11 is talking about the coming of the Lord. It will ultimately be fulfilled when he comes again the second time. He's preparing that for that by assembling them into their homeland. Listen to what uh, Hosea says in the book of Hosea uh, in uh, chapter 3 and verse number 14. I'm sorry, Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, and be glad and rejoice with all of your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away your judgments, and he hath cast out your enemies, and the King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee, and you shall not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, and to Zion, do not let your hands be slack. The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee. He will save you. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love and he will joy over thee with singing. Verse 18, God says, I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who were of thee and to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all those that afflict thee and I will save her that halteth and gather her that was driven out. And I will get praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. And at that time, I will bring you again. Even at that time, I will gather you. These are simply two of the Old Testament prophets that promise that in the last days, in preparing for the king to come and for the kingdom to be established, that God would regather his people Israel. And every time a glass was raised and they would say, next year in Jerusalem, they were saying, God will keep his promise to regather us. Do you know that 100 years ago, 100 years ago, simply one century ago, there were fewer than 90,000 Jews living in the land of Israel, millions around the world, but less than 100,000 Jews living in the land of Israel in a century ago. And today, there are Jews living in Israel, nearly 7 million. 7 million Jews who have come from all around the world. And in fact, since 2006, there are more Jews living in the land of Israel than in any other country in all the world because God has kept his promise to regather them. And by the way, they celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, right? Why would people in Jerusalem raise a glass and say, next year in Jerusalem? when they're already there. They don't say that in Jerusalem anymore. In fact, they don't often, most Jews don't say that, Zionist Jews anyway, don't say that anywhere in the world because they know they can get on a plane and go to Jerusalem tomorrow. It's no longer this long hope that God must fulfill. He's already fulfilled it. So you know what they say now? They raise their glass at the end of Passover and they say, next year in Jerusalem, rebuilt. Jerusalem rebuilt. And by Jerusalem rebuilt, they mean Jerusalem's temple rebuilt. And today they are assembled in Israel. They are gathered there. The nation has risen in strength and power. God has regathered them. And at any moment, I'm telling you, the news could report it tonight. The status quo in Jerusalem could change and they could begin the construction of the third temple. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 4, could come to pass in very short order that the beast could sit in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. If you are with me, say amen. 
Jesus is coming, but he hasn't come yet because there is another that must come before he comes. Now, there's one other thing back in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2 that you need to see. One other gathering that must occur before the coming of the Lord. Write it down. It is that God will gather his church home before the kingdom comes. Before the kingdom of God comes to the earth, before Jesus brings his kingdom to the earth, he will regather Israel. He's done that. But before he comes and brings his kingdom to the earth, he will take his church home to heaven to be with him. Look at it, chapter number two and verse number one. I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him. The Bible says that there's a gathering where we will be gathered up to be with the Lord. Now, I know that many of you know this already, but I just want to have you turn back one page and look at how this uh, gathering, our gathering to the Lord is described. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 16. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Here's what will happen. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be at home, I might insert, with the Lord. The coming of the Lord and gathering of his church home is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But then it's explained why it will happen this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. Look at verse number 9. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9. Why will God take the church out before he brings the day of the Lord on the earth? Verse 9 says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus. Now, here's the logic. Logic is that when the day of the Lord occurs and Christ comes and prepares to establish his kingdom by bringing in the tribulation, which Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 1 as including flaming fire, vengeance, and punishment or wrath, you and I who know Christ have been delivered from his wrath. If you're glad, say amen. We've been delivered. So before the day of the Lord comes, he says, be encouraged. He will come and gather us to himself. This is what we call the rapture of the church. One day Christ will come and he will take us home to heaven. Then the day of the Lord will unfold, ultimately ushering in the kingdom of God. Now you ought to be asking a really important question. Pastor, when will Jesus come and call us home to heaven? One day. <laughs> One day it's going to happen. Sooner rather than later. I don't know exactly when, but I will tell you this. I know the kingdom of God cannot come today because the temple is not standing. The Antichrist has not seated himself in that temple. But I do know that the gathering of the church in the rapture could happen today because nothing stands in the way of that event occurring. It will happen one day. So what do you do as we wait for that one day? Be it today or tomorrow or next week or next month, or 50 years from now or 100 years from now. What do we do while we wait? Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, let me give them to you quickly. Number one, don't worry. It's really what he's saying to these Thessalonian believers who are suffering and having such persecution and troubles in their lives and difficulty in their world. He says to them, don't worry. Don't be alarmed. Don't, don't, don't be disturbed. Don't be shaken in your mind. But rather, praise God. Now why? Why should I live in a broken world, a messed up life, and praise God? 
Here's why. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, we give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Why? Because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation. No matter what's, if y'all are listening, say amen. No matter what's happening in your life right now, no matter what's going on in our world today, God has known you from the foundation of the world. He's had his heart set on you. You've been the apple of his eye. He has chosen you to himself and he has called you to himself The Bible says in this verse that he has called you by the gospel. He has sanctified you by his spirit. He has guaranteed you that you will inherit the glory of Jesus in heaven. And I'm here to tell you, there's no COVID-19 that can stop that plan of God. He's going to accomplish it. So why do I need to fret and worry and be alarmed and disturbed? I'm under the constant care of the one who knew me before he made worlds. So what do I do while I wait for the Lord to come? Number one, don't worry. The second thing that we should do is to stay true. Stay true, stay faithful to the end. Therefore, verse 15 says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught. In other words, stand fast means don't waver. In these difficult days, don't waver. Don't be blown off course. Don't drift in the culture of the world. Stand true to the Lord and hold on to the teachings, the truths of God's word. Don't worry. Stay true. And finally, what should I do? You should hope for that one day when Christ will come for us. Verse number 16, now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God even our Father, which has loved us and given us an eternal comfort, an everlasting consolation, and he has given us good hope through grace. You know what the word good hope means? The word good doesn't mean that's really good. It means he's good for it. The word hope means expectation. He has promised that he will come one day and get me, delivering me from his wrath, taking me out of my troubles and out of the troubled world, and I will be gathered home with him. That is a promise, and he's good to his promises. And I can look back and see that he promised to bring Israel home, and he's done it. And now I can look forward and say he's promised to take me home and one day he will do it. Amen? So until that day, just wait for him. And can I say it to you this way? On that day when he comes and our troubles and our suffering and our difficulty ends, there'll be no more COVID, praise God. There'll be no more cancer and there'll be no more sickness. And there'll be no more divorce. There'll be no more division. There'll be no more vulnerable children. And there'll be no more evil. Because on that day, he will set everything right.